Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast in search of answers to questions large and small. Today's questions are big ones. What do we know? And how do we know about 4 billion years of our planet's climate history? As guide, we have Jan Zalashevich, Professor of Paleobiology at the University of Leicester, who, with Mark Williams, co-wrote The Goldilocks Planet. That Goldilocks Planet is, of course, our own. Life-sustaining for 3 billion years of its existence, because it's been neither too hot nor too cold, not too wet nor too dry. Before we got on to what we know about the Earth's climate in the distant past, I started by asking Jan how we can even begin to reconstruct the climatic conditions from our planet's earliest epochs. This is the, the you know the, the great mists of the unknown, you know the the and still very very large mysteries uh, out out there, you know in in those very early days, and the evidence is is scrappy, it's tantalising, it's exceedingly threadbare, but nonetheless from that you have to try and, and construct some sort of picture of, of what the Earth was like, and, and let's say if we go back to the Hadean Aeon, which is the you know, the first billion years or so of Earth history, from which almost no rocks survive, in fact, almost nothing survives, uh, except, uh, you know, um, not even a handful, not even a thimbleful uh, of tiny zircon crystals, you know, from uh, some not-quite-as-old rocks in, 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 in the outback of Australia. And we can tell from those, we think, that even four billion years ago, there are hints that there was uh, oceans, there was liquid water, and there was atmosphere from particular aspects of the chemistry of those crystals, which formed deep, deep down, but nonetheless seem to have uh, taken on some echo or some shadow, you know, of conditions above. And then when we get a a little bit more recent, let's go back to the Archean, you know, when we begin to get rocks, which is, uh, let's say, three, three and a half billion years ago, then what can we tell? Well, we can tell that the Earth was not cold because there is no evidence in those days of ice. Ice in large masses creates very particular rocks, you know, boulder clays and the like. And there's no evidence of those in those early days. So the Earth somehow was warm and that in itself is a mystery because the sun was cool in those days. So in some way the Earth must have had a thicker blanket. And again, speculation, ideas on what made that blanket. Was it more CO2? Was it more methane? Was it more aerosols in the atmosphere? Was it different proportions of land and sea, different types of reflection of of the Earth's light and heat? 
So it's a field which is growing very quickly because people are getting more adept at, at reading these very faint signals. But there's a long, long way to go in divining those mysteries. If we had, by some miracle, been able to position ourselves above the Archean Earth in, in some spacecraft or other, what would we have seen looking down? Would it have been an entirely alien vista? Oh, yes. And, and wouldn't that be lovely, you know, to take, you know, to, to borrow the TARDIS, let's say, and, and, and simply look at the Earth. Well, one thing you could say, the Earth would be a different colour. This was a days of no oxygen, and, and therefore there was no, no oxidation, no rusts. The, the colours would have, would have been shades of, of greys, browns, blacks, um, perhaps some green, but maybe not biologic green, but maybe mineral green in, in, in there, rather than the reds and the yellows of the rust that develops, that developed when oxygen came into the atmosphere, you know, some billion years or so later. Also, let's say the shape of the land and the sea. Plate tectonics was probably working differently then. The Earth was hotter inside. The continents might well have been smaller, moving around rather more quickly. Again, the amount of sea in relation to land is, is a big unknown. Oceans are not preserved in those days. But nonetheless, one has this, this the vaguest of pictures of, of a, a, a different and alien planet then. And then the planet sort of goes into quiescent state, doesn't it, for the best part of two billion years, which you refer to as the, the, the boring period, where it's almost as though, as though nothing is happening. That, that's an astonishingly long period of time. What, what accounts for that stasis? We don't know, basically. It's been referred to as the boring billion by geologists. And... It represents a time after rather big changes, after the first time that, you know, ice came in and invaded the Earth. And that seems to have been associated with the introduction of oxygen, which cleaned up the methane, which made the, the atmosphere less retentive of heat by, by the Earth. Uh, but then it ex expected ice ages to come and go regularly, but they didn't for some reason. The Earth somehow stabilised. It's not that things didn't happen. Lots of things did happen, but climatically, it seems to have been fairly subdued for a billion years or more until these, these dramatic snowball earth glaciations came in uh, about three quarters of a billion years ago. And there's still a lot of debate, isn't there, about the extent to which the earth, to, or whether the earth did actually turn into a complete snowball or whether it was a slush ball or exactly what happened. So what, what is the prevailing state of, of knowledge about that? Oh, again, this is where, where one would take the TARDIS and position it above and, and love to see whether what's called the hard snowball, where everything is covered in ice, there's probably no hydrological cycle, therefore no clouds, not much in the way of weather, brilliant blue sky and, and so on whether that was the case, or, or whether there were large patches of, of slush and open water and so on. Most of the mainstream opinion these days seems to tend towards a slush ball, because there is evidence that here and there of, of the effect of, of, of water currents and, and waves and such like in between the, the ice patches of, it seems, open sea around there. So maybe not, not, not quite the, the hard snowball, you know, of, of, of that, that was the idea that burst upon the scene really, you know, some, some uh, 20 years ago. But nonetheless, again, you know, this, again, we have to emphasise, these are big, long intervals of time. Lots of things happened. You know, we would squeeze all of our, our own history into that a hundred or even a thousand times. It's, it's, an, it's a young science. It's early days. Lots still to do to define how and why, you know, the, this, these extreme glaciations developed, because they were never seen since. You know, once, once they, they departed, that's been it. Life has been, in a sense, you know, rather more measured, climatically speaking. Are they 
a good example of how feedback cycles operate in the Earth's climate system, how once a, an effect has begun, it can be self-perpetuating. Yes, that's right. What, what, one thing that, that the rocks tell us very clearly is, is that feedbacks are, are immensely important in the history of the Earth. Both positive feedbacks, the kind of things which tend to amplify the changes, and negative feedbacks, the kind of things which tend to slow them down or, or, or make them a, a, a wee bit more measured. Again, the kind of patterns that, that seem to be coming through is that very often it's the positive feedbacks that come in first to make climate change, when it happens, um, rather quick and rather dramatic. And then the, the negative feedback slowly claw climate back over tens and hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years sometimes, back into, if you like, a, you know, something approaching the long-term steady state. So can you say then, for example, how the Earth would go from having no polar ice to being almost a snowball or a, or a slush ball? How would the, the reinforcing effect work in that instance? Well, for instance, uh, one effect is albedo, the, the shininess of a planet. As ice grows, ice is very strongly re reflects the sun's heat and light. So the more it grows, therefore the cooler the Earth gets. And amongst the ideas of Snowball Earth is the idea of, if you like, a runaway ice house. You grow enough snow and ice, and then, potentially, one, one can freeze the whole Earth. Clearly something happened which came there or thereabouts. And again, we, we have to find, once this has happened, again, the early ideas suggested that once you're into a state like that, you can't get out of it. Clearly the Earth did get out of it, and it seems here that the, the get-out clause was provided by volcanoes, still active under the ice, you know, still producing carbon dioxide, pushing it into the atmosphere until levels built up and up and up sufficiently for the, if you like, the, the, the climate machine to go... Uh, it seems rather rapidly and dramatically into reverse, you know, to suddenly melt a lot of ice and, and rewarm the planet. You mentioned that often the transitions are very lengthy, they cannot take place over millions of years. But when we get to the beginning of the Holocene, our own age, or the, the age, if, we, if we're in the Anthropocene, the age that precedes our own age, the transition appears as though it may have been very rapid, geologically speaking. Oh, incredibly abrupt. You know, some years ago it was thought that the the last switch from very cold, bitterly Siberian cold, to warm, to temperate, in the Northern Hemisphere, took place over some decades. And the latest evidence suggested that the, the, the bulk of that change might have been uh, accomplished in, in as little as, as three years or perhaps even one year. So it seems that the, the Earth system, if it's near a, a tipping point, and tipping points are clearly real, can turn oh, on, a, on a sixpence even, and, and to switch from one state to another. And the kind of agencies which bring that thing about will be very probably ocean currents. It's clear one can stop a large ocean current really quite quickly, and of course that stops the radiator that warms a large part of the planet, transferring that heat elsewhere, so it's a case of internal reorganisation of heat. But this system has obviously swung in the past really quite quickly, you know, from cold to warm to back again. And hemispheres operate differently. The northern hemisphere is a dramatic one here. You go to the south, and you have the same changes, but a little bit offset and smaller by, let's say, a, a degree or two, rather than by four, five, six degrees swing in average temperature.
And what accounts for that difference between northern and southern hemispheres? Again, presumably, uh, we're looking at uh, different patterns of ocean currents and also the, the fact that in, in the south there is a, a massive blob of permanent ice, which is East, East Antarctica. And this combination you know, seems to have, have, have kept climate more stabilised in, in the south compared with the north. So it is, a, a, again, a, you know, a different combination of the Earth's if you like, plumbing and central heating system. Now, I guess most of us might, if asked when mankind started to have an influence on the planet's climate, might look to the Industrial Revolution, but there have been conjectures that it may have begun before that. Oh, yes. The effects on on climate of people have certainly been suggested very strongly and, and supported with a deal of evidence from the time that humans began extensive agriculture. So that is, is uh, let us say, 5,000 years ago, the beginning of, of, of agriculture in the Middle East, the, the spread of, let's say, the, the first rice paddies in, in Asia and, and so on. And this would have, in this idea, you know, uh, proposed by a very well-respected scientist, Bill Ruddiman, the extra carbon dioxide and, and methane would have been sufficient to keep the Earth from sliding back into an ice age and, and to keep it warm. It is controversial idea. It is a, a finely poised argument, you know, at the moment. But ideas go even further back than that. There, there's been a, a published idea that humans, let's say, acting 10, 11,000 years ago and hunting to extinction uh, a proportion of the Earth's megafauna, the, the large herbivores, would have affected the carbon cycling, the production of methane, the, the distribution of, of, of grassland and, and, uh, and forest, to make an effect upon climate. That is, again, rather more speculative, but these ideas are current. Humans clearly have the potential to have a big impact, you know, even in relatively small numbers. If, as a thought experiment, we were to sort of subtract humankind from the planet for a moment, what would the planet's climate be heading for at the moment? Well, again, there are, there are two schools of thought here, though it's rather, you know, and, and with shades of grey in between, of course. Uh, but one is, is uh, let's say, that without humans, we would now be sliding back into an ice age with more or less abrupt steps uh, along the way. Another idea is that we would be not very far away from where we are now, because interglacial phases, uh, again, we, we now know, are clearly of different length. You know, there are some which cluster at around... Uh, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand years, um, you know, which is, let's say, the previous interglacial was of that order, and therefore would be very near or just beyond the end of that. But there are clearly others, let's say, the, the third from the present, uh, which lasted of the order of 30,000 years. Uh, so the question is, are we in the middle of something like that, or are we near the end of, 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 of the brief version? And again, you know, there is evidence currently being produced which seem to support one or the other of these arguments. But our interglacial is the longest there's been for 400,000 years, is that, is that true? That's right, yes, yes. Uh, if we go back 400,000 years, each of the, the, the three previous ones are brief between seven and 9,000 years. And the one before that is a long 30,000-year one. So our current interglacial is long. It is very, very stable by comparison with most of that 400,000 years of previous time. You know, particularly in the, the, the colder phases, then climate skittered up and down dramatically, again, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, changing every, sometimes every 1,000, every 2,000 years from very cold, you know, to really quite temperate. And you also point out that sea levels have fluctuated much more than 
our historical memory can retain. Oh yes, yes. Again, in in this past, as, as climate went up and down, then then ice melted or, or, or refroze, and sea level did bounce up and down. And, and humans, the early humans, simply had to adapt to those rapid changes. And that might be where you know some of the let's say the ancient myths of let's say the Noah's flood and such like came from of having to adapt to these changes. Not to mention Atlantis, of, of, of course. Uh, but the Holocene, yes, has been stable with regard to temperature, you know, for the last, oh, something in excess of 10,000 years. And as soon as sea level reached its, its current level, some six, 7,000 years ago, again, that has been stable within a metre or two. That is geologically unusual in our current phase of the Ice Ages. Towards the end of the book, Jan, you've got a very arresting metaphor. You say we're vigorously rocking a boat which has shown a marked propensity to capsize. It's a, a, clear, a clear indicator of the level of our folly. Well, that, that's, um, that, that is a, a metaphor borrowed, if, if, if indeed not stolen, you know, from uh, Wallace Brocker, one of the, the world's great oceanographers, who, who has a habit of coming up with, with good phrases like that. You know, and, uh, another one of his, his articles was titled, Don't Touch That Dial! Exclamation mark. So, yes, it, it, it's clear that, that climate... Uh, and especially climate over the last few million years has been very febrile and that it has reacted quite strongly to relatively modest stimuli, changes in in sunlight, greenhouse gases and so forth. And now we come along uh, and as part of of our lives, uh, our lifestyles if you like, have flooded the atmosphere with more CO2 than has been present for well in excess of a million years. We have changed the nature of the ground, we've changed the reflectivity of the ground, we've changed the amount of dust and particulates in the atmosphere, and all of these things are having different climate effects. And of course the Earth is a big complicated mechanism, it takes time for these changes to to work through, let's say it takes a, a thousand years for the ocean waters to circulate. But nonetheless, one can't see these current human made changes as being anything other than the prelude to to rather large climate changes in the, uh, let's say, the near to intermediate future, let us say centuries to millennia. I guess one of the lessons that I took from the book was that if we're only looking 50 years ahead or 100 years ahead or even, you know, heaven forfend, as far as the next election, we're really not not paying attention properly to the the full implications of, of what's going on. No, no, we, we're not. And I, I think that's, it, it's clear that everybody agrees it will be a good thing to arrest the rise of, of carbon dioxide and, and, and other greenhouse gases in, in the atmosphere. And yet, because carbon drives our, our lives currently, we could not exist without it. That is not being done. That is, 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 has been found to be impossible to do so far. So our capacity as a global society to to forestall these future climate changes, in fact ongoing climate changes, don't seem very well developed at the moment and one can only hope that we will learn to be more effective and more cooperative in the future. It's ultimately the message of your book that if we look at the the, the bigger picture, the longer trajectory of history, then our perceptions of the effect we have are potentially much greater than, than we conventionally allow. Yes, history does. As in, in, in politics, human history is very important to know, you know, what kind of things have happened in the past. Therefore, we, we, we can plan better for the future. And, and here we're looking at a rather longer, deeper history. But nonetheless, it, it shows how the Earth behaves, and we're getting a, we're certainly getting a very good idea of the 
course of that history in, in a lot of detail. And we're beginning to get an idea of that more difficult thing of quite why climate has changed as, as it has done. So yes, this deep history does provide a, a context and perspective as a guide to the kind of things that might happen in the future and the rate at which they might happen as regards climate and all the things which are driven by climate, the, the sea level, the Earth's animals and plants and, and their ecosystems and, and, and so on. There are no direct analogues in the past for what we're doing. There are a number of, of partial analogues because what we're doing in many ways is, is quite unique. The rise of, of carbon dioxide in the climate, for instance, in, in the atmosphere, I beg your pardon, is probably faster than in any of the, the fossil global warming episodes that we know of in the past. So, again, there will be consequences of, of that very rapid rise, but as yet we don't have an exact parallel you know, for this very distinctive change that we are currently producing. And one final metaphor that sticks in my mind is, is lighting the blue touch paper, which goes back to this feedback loop, isn't it? You can, you can set something in motion, and then it almost doesn't matter what you do because the, the Earth systems will, will pick it up and, and run with it, and the consequences will then be, be beyond human intervention. Yeah, that's very clear. And again, if we look in the past, most of the big changes seem to have some sort of touch point triggering mechanism, and then they un- unfold in a rather complicated way once they, they, they're examined in great detail. It seems that one change sparks up another, sparks up another, sparks up another, and so they, they build up and, and, and climate can, the earth can warm, cool, warm again, and, and, and so forth. So, yes, th- these other natural mechanisms will kick in. You know, for instance, methane might be released from the tundra, you know, which will be a warming agent. Rocks may weather differently in, in, in a warmer and wetter climate, and so on and so on. As sea level rises, it will have a different reflectivity to that of land. And so these different knock-on effects will interact in, in a complicated and, in detail, currently unpredictable way. Jan Zalashevich. The Goldilocks Planet, which Jan co-wrote with Mark Williams, is available in paperback from Oxford University Press. You can find out more about it on their website, and do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews like this one. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.